So as Anne has said, this is our end now of our short series this month on Philippians. And as I was mentioning in the notices, next week we're going to be heading into the season of Advent leading up to Christmas. And so we're looking in that period at some of the Psalms um, that help us to understand more about the sense of hope and joy and peace and love that the Christmas story is all about. Um, But as we finish our brief stop with Philippians here, I I want to remind you of the purpose of this letter from Paul and why it's actually in the Bible that we have. So the Apostle Paul, as you might uh, know, was one of the first great Christian missionaries and he travelled around the Mediterranean uh, telling people about Jesus and about the good news. And when he did that, he often started small churches in the places where he stopped. And one of those, as we've uh, been reading about, was the town in the town of Philippi, which is a Roman colony town in Macedonia at the time. Paul recognised, however, that it's not just enough to start a church. It's important for people to do more than just begin in their faith in Jesus. Christian people need to go on after that and grow in their understanding of God and in the practical transformation of their lives. And so he wrote letters of encouragement to these congregations after he left with teachings of various kinds to address their situations. And most of the New Testament is made up of those letters. Uh, The church in Philippi, as we read, seems to have generally been quite a healthy community, uh, but they had their own struggles and they needed to understand more deeply how to live well as Christians through the various difficulties of their lives. So as I said in an earlier sermon, Paul's really underlying question in this letter is, how do we live well as an authentic Christian community in times of struggle? So how do we live well as a Christian community in times of struggle? And his answer to that question has been to draw the Philippians back to understand the depths of their faith in Jesus and to learn again who Jesus really was and what he did and the sources of power that they have available to them to become the kinds of people that they were made to be and that they're called to be. And as we've said, our theme verse for this series is in chapter 2, verse 15. Paul says, the idea is that if they follow the way of Jesus as he's taught them, they will shine like stars in the universe, in the world in which they live. In the first chapter, this idea is discussed in terms of the idea of holiness. So how can we grow in the process of becoming more like God in his character? And I showed you this diagram I made. I call it the cycle of sanctification, which is what I believe Paul commends to them, which is the idea, it's a simple idea, if they grow in their knowledge of God and who God is, in their true knowledge of God, then they will be able to express God's love more to those around them. And as they grow in that love, they will therefore be able to know God more deeply. And this goes on. In the second chapter, our second uh, sermon, we looked at um, Paul's teaching around the idea of emptying, or the word kenosis in Greek, and how Jesus is the ultimate example of emptying himself, of sacrificial love. Emptying himself as he came into the world of every privilege that he had in order to come down to us and lift us up from sin and death. And so if we're followers of him, our calling is to do that as well, and to follow him in that process, to empty ourselves of things that distract us from our task of loving other people and knowing God. And so that's how, I think, Paul says, a community can grow and mature through difficult times, emptying themselves of all that is in the way of that. 
And finally, last week in chapter 3, he brought us to consider the question of identity. And Paul shows us there that the reality of the Christian faith, as it's practiced, is that it cuts away from us the false or the passing identities that we construct out of various labels or ideas about who we really are. And it places us firmly in our identity in where we're going, our destiny to be in Christ and to be like him. And so this is what we're coming, and so it tells us who we really are now. And in the last part of the letter then, in and around chapter 4, which we read today, Paul does what he often does in the closing of these kind of letters. He deals with some practical matters um, in the life of that community, and he provides some practical advice and application of his teaching to the situations of the Philippian congregation in particular. And so if you read the end of the... Uh, yeah, that's the one. So if you read the end of the letter, there are three issues really that he alludes to about what was going on in Philippi at the time. The first is in, if you go back from where we read to chapter 3, verses 15 to 21, he talks about some people in the congregation who might be losing heart in their faith because things are becoming difficult. And he sees that they're tempted to fall back um, into their old ways of behaving that they had before they became a Christian. And they've become indulgent and greedy and they're lacking generosity. Um, and this may be tied up with the false teachers who were around these communities at the time and who he considers, he says in this passage, to be enemies of Christ, who were encouraging people to lead this way, live this way. And he doesn't want the Philippians to be led astray by these ideas. So that's the first problem that he sees. The second is um, the issue that we can see just before the reading we had today. So in chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, where he talks about there's a problem of disunity or disagreement within this congregation about the direct direction of their life together. And he names two leaders in the church, two ladies, uh, Euodia and Syntyche. And these women were obviously having a dispute that was causing disruption among the leadership. And he says he considers them friends and co-workers, and he wants them to reconcile and work together again. He speaks to them about that. And this is the kind of church politics um, that is unfortunately the reality in many congregations when life is difficult, and Philippi is no exception. But Paul says it can damage the capacity of that community to live out their faith and shine like stars, and so it needs to be healed, it needs to be restored. And so that's the second problem. And finally, he does talk in the rest of chapter 4, for instance, verses 10 to 23, about his own troubles. He's in prison at the time, and he has encouragement for the Philippians to be involved in supporting him and other Christians who are being persecuted around the Mediterranean as the, in the way that he is. And I think this bit at the end is the kind of the relational beating heart of this letter. It's why it's been written. It's Paul's concern for these people and their concern for him, and he's talking about how that can be shown. And so when we come to this more pure teaching section that I've chosen for our reading today from chapter 4, verses 4 to 9, I think what we have here are the principles that Paul uses to address the kind of practical challenges that he's talking about and which the church is facing in Philippi. And what he does essentially is to remind them again and to give them some tips about um, how the goal of following Jesus is that we transcend, he says, or get above the mindset and the perspectives of the normal world around us and instead live from the place of God's presence and the transformation that brings. In verses um, 7 and verse 9, there are two great little phrases that express this idea. So he says in verse 7 that if they do what he suggests, the peace of God will guard their hearts and minds. 
There's a peace that will come to them that is beyond normal human understanding. And in verse 9, he says again, if you follow his advice, then the God of peace will be with him. So these two things are true. When they draw near to the God of peace, then the peace of God will come to them in the midst of their struggles. It reminds me of the letter of James, chapter 2, verse 8, where he says this, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And this is what Paul is saying here. And so the advice that Paul gives in these verses then is based around this idea. The peace of God comes from the God of peace. Um, And it's really a set of instructions that he gives around attitudes and training and sort of disciplining the way that we think and respond to things that challenge us each day. If we're hoping for the peace of God to be with us, then we're encouraged by Paul to do three things. So to rejoice, to be gentle, and to pray with thanksgiving. So to rejoice, to be gentle, and pray with thanksgiving. So he says in these verses, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. So rejoice, be gentle, and pray with thanksgiving. So let's think, why do we need to do these things, or what uh, will be the benefit of doing these things if we do want the peace of God? Well, I think essentially all these, these three things are basically the opposite of things that will disrupt peace if we do them. So think about rejoicing. What's the opposite of rejoicing? Um, in some way, it may be to mourn or to lament, I think, but those are actually, I think those are healthy things to do a lot of the time. But I think for Paul, perhaps the real opposite of rejoicing would be uh, complaining. When we complain in bitterness about things, we fo- we're focusing on what's bad, what we don't like, what's going wrong, how we've been aggrieved. And in doing so, I think we often lose hope and perseverance and perspective on what God can actually do in the world or what he is doing. Complaint is a restless mindset. It's not a peaceful one. And so Paul says we need to, do, to think differently. He says to rejoice, and he says it twice doesn't he? Because it's so important. Rejoice, he says. I tell you again, rejoice. And so rejoicing in the Lord, as he says, rejoicing in what God has done, means that you can actually see and acknowledge the reality of God's presence in your life. God is here. He says, the Lord is near. And so rejoicing now looks forward then to the time in resurrection, in eternity, when we rejoice about everything, always. And so to rejoice now means to bring that to reality now, um, to the extent that we're joyful about what God's doing. So rejoice, he says, and God of peace will draw near to you. So the second thing after rejoicing, he says, is to be gentle. He says, let your gentleness be evident to all. This may be the surprising one in the midst here, but not think of it. But I think it's important because what's the opposite of gentleness? The opposite of gentleness is harshness to be rough with other people, to dominate them or to manipulate them. It's not hard to see that if that's the way we behave, then we're not going to be at peace with other people, are we? Or at peace with God. Harshness and bullying is usually a cover that we put up for the lack of peace that we have inside us. The ultimate opposite of the gentle soul is the violent person, someone who breaks peace in others' lives because they don't have peace in themselves. 
if they were if we were full of peace we would never try to control the people around us or to hurt them or crush them because we'd be secure we would be at peace in the lord gent and able to be gentle so gentleness which is a fruit of the spirit as the kids connect uh kids will know um Gentleness is that quiet, sort of softer demeanour and approach to our relationships. It allows people around us to be who they are and takes care not to cause hurt or offence. It is a peaceful approach. Now, gentleness is not weakness. Gentleness is actually strength because it's an exercise of discipline in the behaviour that we have because we care about cultivating peace. You might know, of course, very strong people can be also very gentle. You might have seen that. Anyway, Paul says... If you want the peace of God, this gentleness needs to be evident in your life. Be gentle to others, not harsh. That's the second um, advice he gives. Finally, he says, pray with thanksgiving. So based on what's the opposite of praying with thanksgiving? Well, based on what he says here, I think the obvious opposite of this is to ruminate with worry and anxiety about our troubles. Um, In verse 6, he says, don't be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Now, we thought earlier and got you to think about things that make you anxious. And obviously, um, if we're consumed by anxiety, well, by by definition, we're not at peace. Now, just to be clear, anxiety is a mental health concern for many people, and it's one that needs to be managed in various ways. Um, And often we don't have a control over how the feeling of anxiety manifests in our body, and we shouldn't feel guilty about that. And I don't think that's what Paul's saying. What Paul is talking about here is more, what is our intentional attitude to life? As we can, he says, he encourages us to turn purposefully to prayer and giving thanks for things instead of attaching ourselves, our identity and our daily life to the anxieties that we have, as though they're the ultimate real things because when we pray for our needs and when we give thanks for what we have it's an acknowledgement that God is present and he is powerful in our lives we're trusting in that and so if we draw near to God with prayer and thanksgiving Paul says he will draw near to us with his peace and the reality will become clear to us so these three actions then are Paul's advice for the Philippians, um, you know, the Christians at Philippi, to seek the peace of God in their troubles. In the midst of difficult people and difficult situations, this is their refuge with God. It's a place of a peace that's beyond our ability, he says, to naturally understand. Rejoice, be gentle, and pray with thanksgiving. That's the first half of his advice. And the second half we find is in verses 8 to 9. And he says, this is the last thing I'm going to say. His advice here again is about what we discussed in the process of thinking about what holiness means. He says, it's a process of knowledge and love. And in verse 8, he says, essentially, and you would have heard, think about things that are good. So think about whatever is true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, praiseworthy Think about, meditate on those things. Fill your mind with them. And he says, I think if you purify and renew your mind, you will find yourself closer with God because God is holy and God is pure. So you're drawing closer to him in your mind. And the God of peace will be with you. And in verse 9, he says to do things, not just think, to do. Do what you have learned. Put it into practice. Show love to other people. And again, the God of peace will be with you because you'll be where he is in his love of others. 
So um, as we end with Philippians as a congregation today, I think that Paul's advice here is very deeply practical, isn't it, for us? It's one of the most practical chapters in the Bible. There's three things, literally, a three-point sermon. I, I never do those, but I have. Rejoice, be gentle, pray with thanksgiving. Write that down. Um, it's very practical, but it's based on tr- deep truths. Um, it's wonderful to remember that we have a calling and a destiny to, as the children of God to be like him. This is what we're doing. And so we will, with God's grace and God's love, and not through our own efforts or, or greatness, we will shine like stars in the universe and be lights in the midst of a world that's often very dark if we follow Jesus' way. And this is a process that happens throughout our lives. Um, we are following Jesus day by day in the way that he has gone. And if we do that, well, we'll end up where he's ended up, in the new life of the resurrection and in that world where God's peace and joy reign supreme. You know, I find as I go on in my life and as a Christian, um, more and more, I just want to raise my eyes to this kind of vision that Paul offers here. I don't want to get dragged down into the world of negativity and frantic activity and competition and violence that we're surrounded by. This is a different thing to think about and to put our eyes on. This is not the world and the presence of the God of peace when we look at those things. Because the world around us, as we know, it's so full of things that tell us that things are bad, people are disappointing, and it's not worthwhile hoping for the future. But we have in Philippians the reminder that there is, and it's actually in our very selves, individually and as a community, that's where hope comes into the world. It's through us. It's in our bodies. It's in our spirits that God's spirit is going to shine out on planet Earth. That's the good news of Jesus. There's a beautiful saying um, by an ancient Christian teacher, a man named Irenaeus. He was a Greek man who was a bishop in France, I believe in the second century AD. And he was, so he was very close to the time of Jesus. And he wrote a lot about what it means for us that God truly became a human being in Jesus and how that saves and transforms us. So he wrote... The glory of God, I've got my next slide there, thanks, Andrew. Yes, thank you. The glory of God is a human being fully alive. And the life of human beings is the vision of God. So the glory of God is a human being fully alive. And the life of human beings is the vision of God. So we are made, he says, and this is what the Bible teaches us, we are made from the beginning to become like the God who made us. To be filled with his glory. To be alive with that. That's our destiny. We've had a few big theology words we're trying to throw in to learn during this series. So we've learned sanctification, kenosis. Last week we learned ontology. Uh, Today I want to give you the word that we sometimes use for what Irenaeus is talking about. It's the opposite word to kenosis. Kenosis means emptying. The word up there, as you see, is theosis. And what that means is the process that we go through of being filled and transformed with the presence of God. The process of being filled and transformed with the presence of God. That is what Christianity is all about. And so in, that li- in this life, if we take hold of that vision and we live fully within it, we will be filled with God's life and his eternal glory. That's what all of the things we do as a Christian church are for. Our religion, our worship, the life of our church, our morality and institutions, our traditions... All of those things are meant to be containers and supports for that process in the lives of Christian people, to be filled with the glory of God, to be fully alive. 
And so when we take these simple pieces of advice from the Apostle Paul, we're taking a step towards that vision of glory and the reality of shining like stars in the universe. So I'm going to finish um, my sermon with a prayer. We're going to sing a song in a moment. Yet not I, but through Christ in me, which talks about this process of growing more like him. So let's spend a moment with God before we sing together. Thank you. We thank you, Lord, as we read Philippians and uh, the rest of your words in the New Testament that you offer to us a vision of our life, our destiny, and the future you have in store. To be filled with your glory, to come fully alive in your presence, to shine like stars in the world. We pray, all of us, that you would renew our passion and commitment today to that vision, to the good news of Jesus, the grace that he offers us, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit that guides us and leads us. And we pray today that we would become more and more like you and you would lead us forward to what you want us to become. So we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.